It's 3am in Brisbane, 2000 in Istanbul, 1800 here in London and 10am in San Francisco. You're listening to Monocle 24. Midori House starts now. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. We're waiting for some investigations and waiting for the results, and we'll have them very soon, and I think we'll be making a statement, a very strong statement. The end of another week of President Donald Trump and indeed the rest of the world trying to figure out how to respond to the disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. My guests Ben Ryland, Marcus Hippie and Malcolm Chachoglian will be discussing this and the day's other top stories including former Deputy UK Prime Minister Nick Clegg's acceptance of an even more thankless job, Julian Assange's latest test of the patience of his long-suffering hosts and is an all-star concept album arguably an excessive tribute to a dead cat. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Ben Ryland, Marcus Hippie and Melkin Charchoglian. Welcome all. And we will start with the latest on a story which has dominated the week and continues to boggle horrified imaginations around the world. The disappearance of Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who presented himself at his country's consulate in Istanbul more than a fortnight ago and has not been seen since. Though various media, especially Turkish, have been ablaze with lurid accounts of his fate, little is yet known for certain, though it does now seem sadly unimaginable that Khashoggi is still alive, and equally unlikely that Saudi Arabia had nothing to do with his death. Um, Of the many aspects of this story which uh, baffle me completely, I'll start with you, Melkin, is that even from Saudi Arabia's own point of view, none of this makes any sense. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi was not a revolutionary firebrand calling for the overthrow of the House of Saud. He wrote a, you know, reasonably well-regarded, mildly critical column in the Washington Post. Why would you go to all this trouble and risk this much reaction just to do away with a, a fairly harmless critic? Are you implying that the Saudi crown prince or the Saudi elite wasn't involved? Uh, No, I'm not. I'm just saying if they were, as they seem to have been, it it makes absolutely no sense. Well, I mean, we know that the crown prince is... He made his way into power by effectively having a mini purge where he arrested huge members of the family, Saudi elite, put them in a hotel and, and... that effectively wiped them from the face of the map one way or the other. So it's not surprising that someone like Khashoggi would get on his nerve and, and endanger the sort of agenda that he's trying to build for Saudi Arabia. Uh, ben, what have you made of the Saudis' attempt to, I guess, manage the reaction? Because another of the aspects of this thing that completely baffles me is that I would assume... Uh, I don't know, having never organised the assassination on foreign soil of a a personal critic, um, that if you're going to go to all that trouble, you would come up with some sort of plan for managing the aftermath, which they don't appear to have done. Potentially, they uh, perhaps misjudged how much the uh, reaction would be as severe as it has proven to be, Uh, especially considering that this is not the first time that Saudi Arabia has taken such actions against someone that was criticising them. uh, If you look at the list of people that the Saudi Arabian government, uh, the regime, has targeted, has put in jail, has sentenced to excessive numbers of floggings, uh, submitted them to torture, all sorts of of terrible, uh, terrible mistreatments. 
the list is absolutely massive. So they perhaps misjudge this by thinking, well, there's already a context here, so we can do this and get away with it. Uh, as as for, I mean, look, the, the lesson to be learned is that actually they can do it and they can get away with it. And perhaps they've looked at how Vladimir Putin has treated a lot of dissidents and has managed to get away with it as well and, and thought, well, you know, if Putin can do it and the international community says they care and, and they're going to do something about it and they say it's not good enough, but in the end, you know, what can they really do? If he can get away with it, then why can't we get away with it? And perhaps they're right, because so far from what we've seen from Donald Trump, the only suggestion is, actually, yeah, he probably can get away with it. And also, let's not forget that Khashoggi has the ear of the American public. He writes or did write for The Washington Post. So anything that he says is multiplied by 10 in terms of the PR disaster for the Saudi government. Except his readership has been multiplied by much more than 10 in the last couple of, course, of weeks since he vanished. The martyr effect. It's extraordinary. I have to say, I wonder, though, I think it's interesting that, Ben, you, you compared what's happened to what Putin may have done when we look at you know various assassinations, for example, in the UK. And I was wondering, if Saudi Arabia is indeed behind this, or is it's kind of like, could they just not have thought anything, anything less obvious, anything, anything a bit cleverer? I think it's well, if the, you the, kill the someone in your against, own consulate, it looks a bit obvious that you may be behind it. The, the, the argument against that, people make the same questions or ask the same questions about Russia's, you know, obviously over elaborate assassination plots, is that that's part of the point of it. You want to be able to demonstrate that you can totally pull stuff like this, and nobody's going to stop you. It's the old James Bond effect, isn't it? I mean, I know that we look at the the elaborate death scenes in a James Bond movie. But, you know, the idea behind that is that they the, the villain wants to prove that they can go to these extremely ridiculous and, and elaborate lengths and they can still get away with it. So, of course, this looks like theatre, but from Saudi Arabia's perspective, it is theatre. And we've all we've all been witnessing this and we're still witnessing the fallout. And, and one would expect that given past behaviour, as I suggested earlier, that, that they probably will get away with it and this will go down in history as yet more theatre. Marcus, I'll put this to you. What have you made of the reporting of it? Because as I said at the top, we actually don't know really very much. There has been an awful lot of lurid reporting uh, of uh, Khashoggi's fate, mostly via Turkish newspapers uh, repeating information which has been leaked to them by the Turkish government. There are tales of audio and videotapes of his final moments, which nobody appears to have actually seen. Um, How circumspect should Western media be, say, in passing on these stories? I think that's a very good good question. Indeed, as you mentioned, the Turkish officials have been very secretive about all this, and I think there's a reason they are investigating what happens and they don't really want to reveal too much. I guess there's also this thing that they are waiting for Saudi Arabia to do their own investigations and come up with some kind of an explanation of what happened and they don't want to release too much information before they hear from Saudi Arabia. I guess that puts some pressure on Saudi, on the Saudis as well. But it's a, it's a good question. It's like well, we've been following numerous articles, we've been following numerous outlets and it always seems that we're just referring to those few stories in the Turkish media that seem to be based on leaked information from the Turkish officials. And, you know, the last thing I heard from Donald Trump is that supposedly he now believes that Gasoji is indeed dead. And, you know, he's basing his conclusions probably on the same reports we've been hearing from the Turkish media. Um, Malkin, what do you think? I mean, have have Western media, who normally, I think, and would quite rightly be extremely suspicious of accounts of most things coming from the Turkish government, have they bought into this narrative over-enthusiastically? Which is not to suggest that I don't think it's true. It does at the moment seem the likeliest explanation that fits the facts. I think, well, as you said, we 
we, we, it's the likeliest explanation. We all um, must believe, or we all sort of want to believe it, right? I mean, uh, it, it's Saudi Arabia. This seems perfectly plausible. But you can't simply be silent about this, so you have to publish some sort of information, some sort of hearsay. Unfortunately, we have to work with second and third tier uh, third tier intelligence. Um, it's inevitable. But, th- you know, the bet that they're making, i.e. We'll, we'll use hearsay, is is fine because it is very likely that it was Saudi Arabia. Okay, well, there will doubtless be more on this story over coming days and weeks, and indeed tomorrow's edition of The Foreign Desk, premiering at midday London time. It does take a longer look at Khashoggi and the possible consequences of his disappearance. Uh, Let's look now at a startling new hire by Facebook, that of former UK Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, who is to become head of Facebook's global affairs and communications team. As anyone who has paid attention to the recent travails of the social media leviathan will be aware, Clegg will not be short of work. Facebook has suffered a recent rash of disagreeable publicity attendant especially on its role as an accessory, witting or otherwise, in the subversion of Western democracies by non-Western non-democracies. Indeed, depending how far back this goes, it may even be possible that Facebook cost Clegg his previous job. Um, Ben, is is this a good hire for Facebook? Yeah, I think it probably is, actually. And I know that might be against the tide of what some people are are suggesting uh, uh, here, but Facebook needs some actual experienced people who have been in some kind of leadership position, who know how politics works, who know the stakes that are involved when uh, we're talking about internationally available information and how that can sway elections and, and cause all sorts of all sorts of uproar. And, and Nick Clegg, while he's only been Deputy Prime Minister, he was Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. It is, you know, a fairly big deal to have that, to have that job. And when you think about the person who's at the top of, of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, we saw him at those uh, Senate hearings where he was talking about, you know, just over 10 years ago, I was running this company in my hoodie in a dorm room. And I know he was trying to talk himself down, but it's actually very true. This guy has been promoted way too quickly. Mark Zuckerberg, even though he had that role just over 10 years ago, now arguably has the entire world's elections under his control. So if they're going to promote someone who has some degree of experience in actual elections and how they're supposed to work, I think that's probably good news. I think I think this is such a typical example. It's an international phenomenon that you have people with great networks, often careers in politics, and then they are being hired for big private companies that pay them loads of money. I think Nick Legg is a primary example of that. Let's not forget that he spent quite a long time in Brussels as well, and I think Brussels is the key as well. Facebook doesn't have an amazingly great reputation with Brussels at the moment because of all these scandals we've seen in recent years. So it looks like this is one of the attempts for Facebook to, to try to gain some credibility and try to somehow gain a better reputation and improve relations with those in power. Uh, Melkin, Nick Clegg has recently been speaking up in the UK on behalf of the idea of a, a people's vote, essentially a do-over of the EU referendum. There will be a march uh, demonstrating in favour of that here in London tomorrow. Uh, that aside, or even that included, is his relocation to California a great loss to British politics? I don't think so. I mean, he's been in the shadows, or not even in the shadows. He has been a forgotten politician for a very long time. He's primarily remembered for being David Cameron's... When you say a very long time, he was Deputy Prime Minister three years ago. (laughs) Well, I mean, that is a long time in political terms. Especially the last three years. It seems even longer. It seems decades. (laughs) Nick, where are you? But he's primarily remembered for being David Cameron's sort of clumsy sidekick and for effectively botching the Liberal, Liberal Democrats. I don't think in terms of PR, and, you know, this is 
a bit ironic because he is supposed to be the head of PR, right? In terms of PR, it's a very bad hire. They're not hiring someone with an incredibly strong track record in politics. Sure, he has a huge network of connections, etc. He has a and lot of experience in being blamed for things. Exactly. He's a ma- he is just a shield, right? He can take a real battering, and maybe that's why they hired him. But I don't know. I think they could have gone some stronger. I have a feeling that it's for a semblance of sort of goody-two-shoesness, goody two if and you know I, what I mean. And I'm also thinking that from the American point of view, I guess it was simply easier to hire someone who wasn't American, considering how how polarized the, the American political landscape is at the moment. But on that score, and I will put this to you, Ben, how nuts are the American media, especially its right-wing media, going to go when it dawns on them that the party Nick Clegg used to lead was called the liberal Democrats. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they might go a little bit nuts by that. Um, I'm not sure that they'll be doing, the right-wing media will be doing an awful lot of reporting on this, however. The the role of Facebook in elections is a bit of a touchy topic, but only for one side of the media. The right-wing is quite happy to believe that Donald Trump got there through perfectly legitimate democratic norms. And they don't want this idea that that Facebook might have played some sort of deep and nasty role in putting him in the White House to to get too far to the surface. So it will be the, our side of, of politics. And I say that uh, not that we are on the, on the, the severe left side, but certainly uh, from the centred part, we are the ones that will be talking more about this, certainly not the Fox Newsers. I mean, if, if Nick Clegg was to phone into this program, if indeed we had the capacity for people to phone into our programs uh, and saints be praised that we do not. No, please don't. Uh, don't uh, well, what, what, what advice would we give him? How should he manage Facebook's reputation? Marcus, I will put this to you. Oh dear, that's a difficult question. I don't actually, I was just actually thinking about what he would do on his first work days. I guess it's just about trying to create improved networks, going for going for coffees, going for lunches, going for dinners. That's what many PR people seem to do. Send emails, be nice. Going for dinners. You can tell he hosts the menu. Can't you? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to remind listeners when it's on next, Marcus? It's, it's only about 46 minutes. <laughs> I'm just imagining spilling a cup of tea in like the Facebook canteen and being really clumsy and overly British about it. Everyone's wearing like t-shirts and shorts and he's in a blue suit with a yellow tie. Might that be the way forward just to go go to America and just go full Hugh Grant on them? Because yes, they, they, exactly. they, they, they eat that up with mustard. Well, a, a, a British journalist from New York famously said being British in the US is the equivalent of being incredibly beautiful anywhere else in the world. And hopefully Nick Clegg might, you know, have some of that effect. The Britishness will work in his favour. I mean, Ben, is there a serious point here? Have Facebook just thought what we need is a sort of likeable, amiable British chap who talks properly and looks nice in a suit? I mean, you sound like you're casting for a sitcom. I do think that they have thought <laughs> they deeper they, about they this. They kind of are. <laughs> I, do, no, I don't want to be, I don't want to rain on the cynical parade too much, but I do think that Facebook have thought a little bit more deeply here. And I agree with, with Melcon that they probably could have got, or they, they they might have preferred someone with a little bit more political clout. He, he obviously isn't the most revered figure of, of British politics. Well, David However, Cameron's not busy. Well, exactly, he's not busy, but maybe he looked at that and thought, no, I've already had one crap job, I don't want another one. So I, I think that maybe they've got him because he, he was approachable He and maybe he wants the job. Maybe he thinks, maybe Nick Clegg thinks he can make an actual difference here because, it, to be serious, I, I do think that Facebook does 
need someone who is uh, quite ambitious and sees this idea of what Facebook can be in something that, that that is a little bit more about the greater good. And one assumes that when people get into politics, it's because they believe in something that they have some degree of principle. At least I like to believe that. It's often proven wrong. So hopefully he sees this and thinks, yes, it's a big, nasty, evil corporation that, that, that works on an ecosystem of big data and selling it to goodness knows who. But maybe we can we can use that and 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 push it into a bit of a better direction that that's that's better for everyone. But I think we're overestimating how much influence Nick Clegg will actually have. Mark Zuckerberg is famously very insulin, relies on the the advice of a small number of advisors. I don't think Clegg is going to go in there and be like, okay, Mark, this is what we're going to do, and this is going to completely change the PR appearance of your country. But don't you think I mean, that company. don't you think that Zuckerberg has got to a point now where he thinks I actually don't know what I've built? I I tend to believe a lot of the nervous the nervous words that he came out with recently and think that actually he he does look like a bit of a kid who's only just started to realize the gravity of what he's created. I'm afraid I don't believe that because it's been well, people who have come into contact with him over the last many years have said that he is strangely very power hungry. He wants growth. He wants more users. He wants this. He has a very clear image of what he's doing. And he's, he's he seems to be quite content at times to shut out all the negative side effects of Facebook in order to focus on this goal. Just finally, I'd, I'd like to hear his thoughts about how he's going to boost the popularity of Facebook. It hasn't been amazing at great times for Facebook in recent years, and they're really struggling with trying to find new users. I was trying to think of people around me, and I guess if they want to, you know, get more popularity. My grandmother is not on Facebook yet. I think an important note, though. A very important note. They don't care about popularity for Facebook because they own Instagram and they own WhatsApp. So pretty much they own everyone here and everyone listening. Well, on that happy thought, uh, a reminder that on tonight's Daily at 2200 London, we will be speaking to the person who used to actually do for Nick Clegg what Nick Clegg is now going to go and do for Facebook. Uh, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Melkin Charchogli and Ben Ryland and Marco Sippi. Coming up next, the world's worst house guest finds a new way to annoy his hosts. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Melista. With me are Ben Ryland, Marco Sippi and Melkin Charchoglian. The staff of Ecuador's embassy here in London have now spent more than six years lamenting of the failure of their receptionist one summer's day in 2012 to think sufficiently quickly to tell the blonde Australian visitor with the laptop bag that he'd come to the wrong address and that this was a dry cleaner or the embassy of Equatorial Guinea or something. Uh, Julian Assange, for it is he, has been resident ever since, initially attempting to avoid extradition to Sweden over 
now dropped rape charges, now trying to avoid arrest for failing to appear in court. The WikiLeaks founder now wants to sue Ecuador's government for violating his rights and freedoms. Your reminder that the embassy's front door works perfectly serviceably. This follows the embassy's threat to disconnect Assange's Wi-Fi if he didn't tidy up his room and take better care of his cat. Uh, this is true, by the way. That did actually happen. Is there at this table any sympathy for him? Alert listeners may have discerned that there is little behind this particular microphone. I have sympathy for WikiLeaks, but I don't have sympathy for Julian Assange. The two entities are now very separate in my mind. <laughs> I, I have sympathy for the Ecuadorian embassy. And, 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 for, and, for his, and, and someone want to speak up for his cat? I, I, I really do. feel for the cat. I really do. As a cat owner, I'm absolutely disgusted. Mm. As I said to Ben, the first sign of a psychopath is lack of sympathy for animals. The thing that baffles me about, well, I mean, the, we, we are well and truly through the looking glass at this point that he is now actually trying to sue the Ecuadorian government who have housed him and fed him for now nearly six years since he turned up uninvited. Um, what I've never understood about is why don't they just hold a fire drill or, if necessary, <laughs> actually set fire to the building? Exactly. What, what is there for them? Maybe I'm trying to think of a good counter-argument to that. I really can't. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so much more you would think they could do, like just sort of say, you know, the, the Ecuadorian National Amateur Sousaphone Orchestra <laughs> uh, needs somewhere to rehearse, and this is the only room we've got, Julian. Could you could you bunch up a bit? One would... assumes that he would actually like to go down in flames, though, because he... I mean, if one thing's clear about Julian Assange is that he already thinks of himself as a martyr, and he's just waiting for his moment to prove it. So if there was a fire drill, he might actually think, wow, finally, this is my big break. <laughs> um, Malcolm, you were saying there that you, you have come to separate in your mind uh, Julian Assange from, from what he has created, i.e. WikiLeaks. Um, what use do you think it actually serves at this point? It's Because it's, it, it, it is not, with all due respect, that all media outlets have their institutional biases. It, it, it is not an impartial distributor of information without favour or inclination towards any side or the other, is it, at this point? No, that's true. But it is still a sort of... Uh an immense fountain of possible information that does scare certain people at the in the upper echelons of the world. And I think it's good to have, you know, that sitting over their shoulder. So, you know, a high-ranking politician to know that his emails, etc., might get leaked. But again, I've separated Assange and WikiLeaks in my mind. Assange's existence is not essential to the survival of WikiLeaks or what WikiLeaks stands for. So I am with you, and I think that they should simply hold a fire drill. <laughs> do, do, do any of you in general have any tips, should the Ecuadorian embassy be tuning in at this moment, for, for getting rid of overstaying house guests? My advice, obviously enough, is just never to let anybody into your house in the first place. <laughs> it's just asking for trouble. But, but what, what, other, what other ways can you let people know, especially after six years, that they, they're, they're pushing their luck a bit? Well, Get you know, out. <laughs> this awfully reminds me of when I once travelled on a boat from Helsinki to Stockholm I went to a nightclub over there that was quite a few years ago and that's when Cher, the Cher song Believe was a big hit and I think they played that seven times in the course of that evening so power play is my solution or you just put all the dirty cereal bowls and I imagine Julian Assange definitely eats a lot of you know Cocoa Pops in his underwear on the, on the co 
on the consular sofa watching TV. They just take all the dirty bowls and put them on his bed, and then that'll send a pretty clear but, message. But, but, but if we look at the warning with which he was served last week, that does not appear to trouble him. No, I mean, they've effectively shut him up from the outside world and still untroubled. Presumably he's lost touch with reality now because he's been sitting in a, a quiet room with only the company of the cat and some Cocoa Pops, according to Mel. Um, so I'm, I'm really not sure what sort of state he, he would be in, but I, I do agree with your earlier point, Andrew. I'm not sure that there's anything really to be lost here at all. He has proven himself not to be uh, some sort of visionary, some sort of bastion for, for freedom of information. He's just yet another partisan nutbag who clearly has... <laughs> has something against women for if we just look at his severe hatred for uh, Hillary Clinton. And, and certainly he never really liked uh, Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Indeed Australia, not. either. So I, 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 there's something there's something very, very dark going on behind that strange hairstyle. And also, if you just, just to quickly mention that I guess it's going to be quite frosty from now on in the Ecuadorian embassy, considering he's going to sue Ecuador. So I would imagine that maybe at some point he may be considering off-leaving. I, I, I do have some further advice for the Ecuadorian embassy staff based in real life experience of my own which was we I was many years ago uh, me and the rest of my housemates were plagued by one other housemate who was a somewhat unhygienic shut-in who just allowed sort of mess to accumulate in his room never sort of really interacted with the outside world and so forth we all just moved <laughs> uh, but finally tonight uh, the death of a pet cat while tragic is for most of us the cue for some fairly low-key observances infrequently exceeding a maudlin post on social media followed by interring it in the garden. Most of us however are not French artiste Sophie Carl who has marked the passing of her pat cat Surus which is French for mouse, which was pretty avant-garde of her, by commissioning a concept album in the late feline's honour. Contributors include Farrell, The National, Jarvis Cocker, Laurie Anderson, and Bono out of U2. Um, ha- have any of you ever perhaps somewhat overdone uh, the posthumous obsequies for a dead pet? Define overdone. Well, anything beyond, basically putting on social media I am sorry my cat died and then burying it in the yard <laughs> I think this is a I, I think this is a lovely example actually I I have to give it to Sophie Carl because she has given a voice to a lot of people who I think are I don't mean to get too deep and meaningful, but a lot of people do feel a very, very severe sense of loss when they lose a much-loved that pet. That is pets, true. That pets is... can be around for like as long as I've been around on this earth. You know, that is absolutely true, and I, I absolutely am not belittling it. Um, but I don't know. Is, is, is this Melkin an oversell? Well, we had a pet that once died, and we held a full Grecian funeral pyre in the style of Achilles for him. Amazing. No. We didn't. I think it is slightly no, over the I top. Quite, I, was, I, was, I was about to ask, like, please tell me it was like a, a hamster or a newt or something. I mean, a newt. Who owns a newt? Andrew. <laughs> well, I, We're I, learning a lot about Andrew Muller. I, 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 I do not own any newts. I, there, there are some that live in my garden, but they are, they are free to come and go, much like Julian Assange. Mm. <laughs> I'm trying to think about overdoing, maybe overreaction. I remember being a kid and my, my pet fish died, and I remember being quite hysterical about that for about two hours, and then I forgot about the whole thing later yeah, on. But, but you, An you, overreaction you, but, looking at things. But were you were you being hysterical by the Finnish definition of hysterical, which <laughs> which I imagine amounts to, my fish has died, I am very sad. I remember crying. Wow. Mm. Fins okay. cried? I thought you didn't have tear ducts. <laughs> um, were you going to make... See, this is this is now liquid radio content. Were any of you going to make a concept album about a dead pet? Who Who, who would you invite to contribute? 
Hmm. That is a difficult question. I think it's completely easy. I would. I know she's also passed away, so uh, I do apologize for mentioning her name. But uh, Eartha Kitt would be an obvious point, uh, not only because of her name, but because she famously played Catwoman and, and could have that that amazing purr to her voice. I think she'd be she'd absolutely have a spot on my tribute album to to Lamington. Hello, Lamington, listening at home. That's my cat. If anyone is wondering, and um, he's alive. Just he's very that. much alive. He's very much alive. That's and he's, the most he's, Australian name you could possibly give a cat. Of course. Naturally, is 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 Lamington essentially brownish with white flecks? He's black and white. He's a tuxedo cat. He's a tuxedo not, cat. He's not really yeah. proper Lamington coloured then. Well, uh, I'll just pretend you didn't say that. Okay. As well, Lamington. I'd get the London Symf- Symphony Orchestra along. I have full say, two hours. That's quite amazing. I have to say that I've been working for Monaco Twenty Four for so long, seven years, that I can only think of Monaco Twenty Four acts. So let's go for Candidolfa. <laughs> oh, it was one of my favorite creams. Yeah, just a uh, stunned silence there. Uh, but no, Andrew, before we do finish this topic, I do have to give it to Sophie Carl because she, I, I will actually be following you in this example and if not releasing an album, a tribute album, most certainly be uh, creating a very carefully curated playlist in maybe, what will it be, 35, 40 years when Lamington finally gives up on this earth and moves to cat heaven. Uh, have you given any thought to what you would put on it? It would definitely be Eartha Kitt, Michelle Pfeiffer, Adele and KD Lang. Are these all people with some particular feline connotation, or are they just artists you like? <laughs> well, Katie Lang he and Adele, said, just he, because... He said desperately padding the last 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're just very, very classy acts. Michelle Pfeiffer, because she's an underappreciated singer, although she did get one of her early starts she, in Greece too, and, and she can pl- sing. And she played Catwoman. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, that's why she's there. <sighs> keep padding. Keep Sorry, padding. Keep padding. No, 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 lads, we've done it. We're there. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Milk and Charchogli and Marcus Hippie and Ben Ryland, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. I think our studio manager was Christy Evans, but Ben's in the way. Yes, no, it was Christy. Uh, More music next at 1900. It is The Menu with Marcus. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time on Monday, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.